How are you out there? Well, we're in Ephesians chapter 4 today, uh, going in through our series on spiritual improvements. We started this New Year's uh, when the world was making resolutions, and we realized that those don't work. In fact, don't raise your hand, but if you made a resolution probably by now, it's almost March, good, good work, but it's probably done by now, amen. All those people who sign up for the gym in January, never to be seen again. But when God does something in us and he initiates it by the Holy Spirit, he brings it to completion, amen? And these are some things in Ephesians 4 that God wants to work into all of his people. And so they're spiritual improvements that God wants to birth in us. We're going to be in Ephesians 4. I'm going to read verses 25 through 32. Our target verse this morning is 30. I'll read that a couple times so we get it in our spirits. But let's thank God for the word and jump in. Father, we thank you today that we can come to this place And Lord, we can worship you and we can be in your presence together as brothers and sisters. Father, we thank you for the word today. From Genesis to Revelation, you've given us a treasure in Scripture, Lord, and you teach us and instruct us. And so as we unpack Ephesians 4 today, verse 30, Lord, allow the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us and change us. I pray that none of us would leave here the way we came, but you deliver us and stretch us and enlighten us today by the power of your word that we would be different because of what you do in our hearts this morning. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Therefore, ridding yourselves of falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, because we are parts of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin, but do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. The one who steals must no longer steal, but rather he must labor, producing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but if there is any good word for edification according to the need of the moment, say that, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Listen to our target verse, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander must be removed from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. One more time, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We've looked at many topics here, looking at spiritual improvements. We we covered lying, and we agreed that lying has no place in the life of a believer. Uh, We talked about dealing with anger properly. It's okay to be angry. It's a valid human emotion, but we need to express our anger in a way that's consistent with godliness so that when we're angry, we don't sin. Amen? So these are things that God wants to work in his people. We addressed the last time we were together the contents... uh, of what comes out of our mouths. Now, I don't know about you, but the hardest thing to control on our bodies, Scripture tells us, is our mouths. Amen? Uh, Our mouth is the hardest thing. It's hard to tame. You can't tame it like a horse with a bit and a bridle. It has the power to set things on fire. Why? Because spoken words are powerful. So God wants us to deal with what comes out of our mouths. Um, you know, we learned in our teaching last time that we should 
exchanged our cursing, criticizing, and complaining for productive, timely, and gracious words. Amen. So if you didn't get that message, you weren't here, you can get online and get that in your spirit. These are powerful things. Up next, the Apostle Paul addresses an issue that centers around our interaction with the precious Holy Spirit. How many are thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives? Amen. Amen. Hands going up everywhere. The Holy Spirit is our confidant, our best friend, our teacher, our guide, the one who leads us into all truth. He's our comforter. Jesus said, it's good for me that I go. Why? Because then the comforter will come. Amen. And he can comfort us in ways that no one or nothing else can. So we need the precious Holy Spirit. This verse here, verse 30, has everything to do with our interaction with the Holy Spirit. And, and it's important for us to know right out of the gate that what we do or say can have a positive or a negative effect on the Holy Spirit's demeanor in our life. What we do or say can have a positive or a negative effect. See, it's what's coming out, what we do or say, it can have an effect on what the Holy Spirit's demeanor in our life. Doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit abandons us. Doesn't mean that he don't want anything to do with us anymore. Just means we've done something to the relationship to, to strain it in such a way that now the demeanor has changed. If you're a married person, you know that you can say something that can ruin the whole evening. Where are my fellas? It's not time to be quiet now, fellas. It was time to be quiet then, but you couldn't. So don't be quiet now. But you can say something, right? Oh, I blew it. The whole night is, you know, and all of a sudden you change the dynamic, the demeanor in the relationship. The temperature plummets. It's cold. And there's like, you know, you just did something. You said something. You forgot something. You didn't say something. You said something the wrong way. You weren't enthusiastic enough. And you just, <laughs> if you know, you know. And, and you've changed the demeanor. And, and with our relationship with the Holy Spirit, we can do things that affect the Spirit's demeanor in our lives. Now, the text puts it this way. It says, do not grieve. Say grieve. grieve. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, that's interesting. The word translated grieve there is the Greek word lupeo. And lupeo means to cause one to feel sorrow, pain, unhappiness, or distress. So lupeo has this connotation where you cause emotions in, negative emotions in another person, and it means what? That you stirred up sorrow, pain, unhappiness, or distress in them. See, and that changes the demeanor of the relationship. So if we would read the text with Lupeo, uh, you know, the translation worked in there, it would be like this. Do not cause the Holy Spirit sorrow, pain, unhappiness, or distress. It's pretty sobering this morning to think that we can affect the Holy Spirit that much, isn't it? Many times we just think, well, you know, we just do what we do and God knows we're messed up and we got rough edges and certainly that doesn't, you know, have any effect on God. He has big shoulders and he knows to be, no, our behavior can grieve the Holy Spirit, can cause the Holy Spirit to be unhappy with us, can cause him distress, anxiety. Have you ever been with a person that was just so out of balance, out of control or didn't have control of their mouth and they made you uncomfortable? Isn't it interesting to think that we can make the Holy Spirit feel like that 
when our attitude, when our behavior is out of control, it makes him uncomfortable. So we have to understand our relationship with the spirit. We're going to dig into that today. The verse reveals some important truths about the character and the nature of the Holy Spirit of God. That's important we know the character of the Holy Spirit. It's important we know the nature of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because sometimes Christians get a little bit off track with the Holy Spirit and make the Spirit something it's not. And if you've ever noticed that maybe, you know, we get a little bit out of balance or we get a little bit goofy with spiritual things. Anybody? Anybody? Any charismaniacs? Any crazy, you know, Pentecostal, Baptocostal, whatever you call yourself? You know, just a little out of balance, just a little crazy, a little unscriptural with the things of the Spirit. Some of you are trying to look so holy now. Yeah, we can get out of balance, and we, you say, well, why is that, Pastor? Why does so much of the body of Christ just get, you know, out of balance or unbiblical or a little bit, you know, goofy with the things of the Spirit because we don't understand the character and nature of the Holy Spirit, and we need to, Amen. Come on, let me feel some hunger this morning. Do you want to know him? Do you want to know him? Indifference towards the Holy Spirit is another issue, and we have to, we have, to have a passion to know him. That's the starting place here. So the important truths that are revealed here uh, to us help us to know who he is by knowing his character and his nature. Number one, the Holy Spirit is not a feeling. Hello, second service. He's not goosebumps, or he's not chills, or he's not, woo the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not a feeling. The Holy Spirit's not a cosmic force of the universe. This is, this is, this is a rough crowd this morning. No, the Holy Spirit is not, uh, you know, an idea or a concept or a philosophy. Some cults and false religions teach that the Holy Spirit is a force or a substance or an oil-like substance to the Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, it, it gets crazy in the, what, what the Mormons teach and stuff. Listen, the Holy Spirit is none of those things. And, and for us in Christianity, the Holy Spirit is not an it. Don't call the Holy Spirit it. It moved me. It got on me. It led me. No, the Holy Spirit's not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. You don't call a person an it. You know, I don't say, you know, I don't, you know, say my wife is an it. It told me to take out the garbage. No, that's my wife, Kim. She's a person. She has a name. She has a character, nature, a personality. The Holy Spirit's not an it. The Holy Spirit's a person. He is the third person of the Trinity. And like every other person, he has a personality. Are we familiar with the personality of the Holy Spirit, his demeanor, how he moves, amen? When you get familiar with the Holy Spirit, you know when it's the Holy Spirit, and you know when it's not the Holy Spirit, amen? And we got to get this today. Why? My sheep hear my voice, and they know my voice, right? And we should know the Spirit of God who dwells in us. Why? Because we have to have that discernment to know when it's the Holy Spirit and when it's not the Holy Spirit. So he's a person. He's not an it. And he's the third person of the Trinity. He has a personality. You know, everybody has a personality. Some of you not much personality, but you ever meet someone with not much personality? I mean, they're just like a lump of Swiss chard. They're just... And then you meet someone else, they're like dynamic and fun. They walk into a room, they light it up. Hello. 
Personality. Lump of Swiss chart. The Holy Spirit has a personality, and because he does, he has feelings and he has emotions. He can feel grieved. He can feel offended. He can be happy. The Holy Spirit can be pleased. And the Holy Spirit, because he's a person, he can be reverenced, he can be adored, and he can be pleased. On the other side of the coin, he can be offended, he can be grieved, and we're going to see this morning that he can actually be blasphemed. We're going to unpack the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today as our text is telling us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It gets real for us as New Testament believers when we realize the different dynamic between an Old Testament saint and a New Testament Christian. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints like Moses and Joshua and Aaron and David and even Sam, Samson had experiences with the Holy Spirit, but they were temporary interactions where the Holy Spirit would come upon a person for a specific situation, for a specific person, and the person would do what God wanted them to do, and then the Holy Spirit would would, would withdraw themselves from them, and then the Holy Spirit was not there. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes into us at salvation and indwells us, and he never withdraws himself with us anymore. We tabernacle, we house, we enshrine the Spirit of God. It's Christ in me, the hope of glory, amen. The Holy Spirit's in us. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit just, he would come upon Samson and he would do exploits. He would come upon David and he would do and say and prophesy and do. And then what? The Spirit would withdraw. I want you to see the difference. For the New Testament Christian, it's different than the Old Testament saint. We have the Holy Spirit on us. And so now our proximity to the Holy Spirit, him being in us and with us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, that is an interesting dynamic now because everything we do and say affects the Holy Spirit and his demeanor in our lives. He's with us. He's in us. The scripture teaches this. Here are some scriptural proofs that as New Testament Christians, we have the Holy Spirit inside us. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So what does it say? The spirit of God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. 2 Timothy 1.14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. There's many more scriptures, but you're getting the idea here. The theme is he's in us. We are the tabernacle. We are the shrine. We house the presence of God this morning. Amen. In the Old Testament, when they were in the desert, they had to build a, a tabernacle that could move. Why? To house the presence of God. In the New Testament, we're the tabernacle. He's in you. He's with you. All the time. Every day. He won't withdraw himself. He won't leave. He won't abandon you. But you and I can grieve him. We can upset him. And we can affect our relationship 
with him. Our proximity to the Holy Spirit being in us makes it vital that we at all times consider our behavior and our attitude and what comes out of our mouth and what goes into our heart. Why? Because we could be offending the Holy Spirit and short-circuiting our own anointing, our own blessing, our own peace, and our own joy. Mm, Jesus. Charles Finney, one of the greatest evangelists, ever in recorded history, ministered in New York State. And they had such great revivals in New York State that they actually, people were getting saved so much that churches were filled, the bars were empty, the, the, the sheriff's office had nothing to do, crime went down exponentially. This is our history. When you see the condition of our state now, we need to pray for a visitation and for a revival once again, amen. But here's a quote from Charles Finney that gives us a snapshot of how we should yearn for more of the Holy Spirit and how we need him so much. Finney said, God gave me mighty infillings of the Holy Spirit that went through me and it seemed to fill my body and soul. I immediately found myself endued with such power from on high that a few words dropped here and there to individuals were the means of their immediate conversion. Finney would walk into a room and people would start to weep. Finney would walk into a bar and people would start to cry and repent. The presence of God is a powerful thing. My words, he said, seem to fasten like barbed arrows to the souls of men. They cut like a sword. They broke the heart like a hammer. Sometimes I would find myself empty of this power. I would go visit someone and find that my visit had made no impression upon them. I would exhort and pray for someone with the same results. So I would set apart a day for private fasting and prayer. And humbling myself, I would cry out for God's help and the power of the Holy Spirit would return upon me with all its freshness. This has been the experience of my life. You see, we should yearn for the presence of God in us so much that our very presence brings people to conviction. That a few words from our mouth brings the steel punch of God and leads to repentance. You say, come on, pastor, is that really possible? It's possible. God did it in another human being in our very state a long time ago, but God can do it again, amen? Didn't we sing it this morning, you can do it again? I believe you can do it again, amen? What I like about Finney is that he would realize when he had the, the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit and when he didn't. And there were times where he prayed and nothing happened. And times where he spoke and nothing happened. And what was his response to that? Oh, God left me. Or I guess it's over. Or I had a good run. No, he got on his knees. He got in the secret place and he cried out to God and he repented and he humbled himself. Until what? Until God visited him and refreshed him with a, with a new infilling of the Holy Ghost. Come on today. You and I got to get hungry for this. Uh, we could walk around weak and powerless and defeated and no peace and no victory and, and not overcome, or we can have what God's word describes as the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's our choice. It's a matter of pursuit this morning. Let's look at some behaviors that grieve the Holy Spirit because we know he's in us and because of the proximity, our behavior matters. There are certain behaviors that we can do that Lupeo, grieve the Holy Spirit that cause him sorrow, pain, unhappiness, or distress. Let's look at some behaviors. The first behavior that 
we struggle with as humans that grieves the Holy Spirit is this, the worshiping of idols. Now, you might think, come on, pastor, we're modern people, we're intellectual, we're, you know, we have all this technology and stuff. Surely we would not bow down and worship an idol. Idols have nothing to do with statues or, you know, pictures or icons. Idols are what we make to take the place of God in our life. And listen, in our culture, in our generation, we've manufactured a lot more idols than they did in those primitive times, amen? We have our technology and our screens and our phones and our computers and our Netflix and our distractions, and all day long, we can chase after these things, what kind of food we're going to put in our body, what kind of drink we're going to put in our body, how we're going to entertain ourselves. And when we make those things more important to God, we grieve the Holy Spirit who's in us. When we spend all our time and energy chasing things that are not kingdom things. Listen, I'm not against having fun. I'm not against, you know, enjoying life. But God has got to be number one. The minute he's not number one, we're out of balance. And that thing's now become an idol. If the first thing I reach for in the morning, I've been playing guitar since I'm seven years old. And me and the guitar are one. When I get up in the morning, if I grab a guitar before I grab my Bible, I'm out of order. If I reach for the, the things that comfort me, the things that I express myself through, if it's all about food, if it's all about, you know, medicating myself, understand, we can make idols out of anything. And when we do, it grieves the Holy Spirit. When we engage in sexual immorality, we grieve the Holy Spirit. When we get to a state of drunkenness or being high on drugs, we grieve the Holy Spirit. He is in us, we are the tabernacle, the temple of the Holy Spirit. How could we pollute the temple with drunkenness or with an altered state of consciousness? But come on, pastor, it's legal. Not for the born-again believer who's filled with the Holy Ghost, it's not. But it's recreational. Understand something today. There's only room for one to sit on the throne of our hearts. We grieve the Holy Spirit in all of these ways where we should reverence him and adore him, yet we fill ourselves with things, we pursue things, immorality, uh, all of what's out there, the filth of the world, and that offends, that grieves the spirit of God within us. Consider some of the places we drag the Holy Spirit along with us. Because he's in us, he can't just say, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out, I'm with you today, I'm, I'm out today. That was Old Testament. New Testament, he's with us. So everywhere we go, we bring the Holy Spirit. Think about some of the places we've dragged the Holy Spirit and how that made him feel. Kind of like a husband getting drugged to an all-day shopping extravaganza on Saturday. <laughs> you know, you see them sitting on the benches across all the malls. Come on, guys, smiles out there, smiles. It's safe, it's safe. You know, they're sitting in the benches in the mall. At least when you go to the furniture store, they got comfortable seating. But the Holy Spirit gets drugged to all these places and we bring him with us to dens of iniquity, to the club and the pub and the party and the movie theater or the computer screen that shows immorality and filth and we make him sit through that with us. No one's coming back next week, it's okay. But I'm just preaching what's in the text. Next week is bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor if you'd like to look ahead with some hope in your heart. So we drag the Holy Ghost with us and we bring him to these places and certainly uh, it has grieved him. It has it is 
made him unhappy, distressed him, been painful to him that a child of God would frequent these places and yield our members uh, to iniquity when we belong to God and we're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. What's the consequence of doing this? You say, come on, pastor, you know, I understand, you know, we've all done this stuff and we're all, you know, feeling a little bit of the sting of that, but what's What's the consequence of us doing these things, of grieving the Holy Spirit, of of bringing him to places that make him unhappy? Well, it's the loss of our peace. If you're, well, that's a big thing to lose, amen? Because listen, when you don't have peace, it doesn't matter what else you have. You could have a nice house, a fast car, a pile of money. You could have all kinds of good stuff going on in your life, vacations, everything. But if you don't have peace, you can't enjoy any of that. So us grieving the Holy Spirit cost us our peace. I see people all the time, Christians all the time, I have no joy, I have no peace, I have no hope, life is depressing, I'm in depression. Well, we need to check ourselves and say, you know, if I, if I grieve the Holy Spirit to the point that it's cost me my joy, am I worshiping idols? Am I frequenting sin? Am I practicing habitual sin that, that grieves the Holy Spirit? Because the loss of our joy is a good indication that something's wrong with our spiritual walk. The loss of our joy should not make us angry towards God. It should drive us to our knees so we find the place of repentance. Amen. So the consequence of grieving the Holy Spirit is losing our peace. And, and some people have said, well, you know, at first when I did X, Y, and Z, it used to bother me. I would feel convicted. You know, I, I, would, I would need to get right with God or I didn't have any peace. But now it doesn't bother me at all. Do you know you can sin over and over again and make it habitual to the point where you don't even feel bad about doing it anymore? Don't raise your hand. This is not the altar call. But this is an important point. If we're in a state like that, we're in a very dangerous place because we've seared our conscience to where we don't even feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in us because we've so thoroughly given ourselves over to sin. That is a dangerous place to be. 1 Timothy 4.2 talks about, uh, describes what it's like to have a seared conscience and maybe we want to examine that a little bit. But the Holy Spirit's in us. When we grieve him, it will cost us our peace and it should lead us to the place of repentance. Now, while there are many ways to grieve the Holy Spirit, the most common way we do is by resisting him when he calls us to repent. See, the Holy Spirit many times is calling us to repentance. Why? Because we get off track, we get tangled up in sin, and the wages of sin are death, and we've got to get untangled from that so that we can get right with God and be blessed and have the joy of the Lord. Amen. All right. And you can clap again. Keep going. Nobody likes a dry preacher. Just remember that. So the Holy Spirit's drawing us to repentance. He's convicting us. He's correcting us. And the greatest way that we grieve him is we say, no, I'm not going to repent. No, I'm not ready to let that go. No, that's my pet sin. I'm not ready to, you know, to get right with you. And there are many people out there who know they're not right with God and know that they're in sin and God's tugging on them. And they're saying, not now, maybe later, maybe when I'm older, maybe on my deathbed. Have you known people like that? Well, I'll just phone it in at the last minute, man. I'll just be like, you know, I'm sorry, God, forgive me now. You know, sometimes that moment of repentance never comes. Some lives are ended really quickly. 
I talked about when I had my little heart situation in May. It's, it's coming up on a year here. And uh, I know that because turkey season's coming back. But anyway, um, you know, it's coming. And I didn't have any time to, you know, tell the paramedics that, can I just have a moment alone with the Lord so I can find the place of sincere repentance? No, I passed out and I was out. Are you playing Russian roulette with your soul? I'll get right with God when I'm good and ready when I've done all my wild nonsense, when I've run my course. No, that's grieving the Holy Spirit. He draws us, he corrects us, he convicts us, and he tells us to repent. And when we perpetually resist the drawing of the Holy Spirit to repent of our sin, we are grieving him. Now for the unbeliever who's being drawn to repentance so that they can be saved, every time they refuse the Holy Spirit, they harden their heart a little more towards the gospel. When you look at Pharaoh in the Old Testament, there were 10 plagues that God used to deliver the Jews from Egypt. And every time Pharaoh said, who is Moses' God that I should obey him? Every time he refused the plague, his heart got harder and harder and harder until he held his own dead son in his hands and commanded his army to pursue them and lost everything. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. It's grieving the Holy Spirit. If you're not saved today and the Holy Spirit's tugging on your heart, don't resist the Holy Spirit. Bow the knee to Jesus Christ and let your life begin, amen? Be forgiven. (laughs) Look, you're not even living until you have come to Jesus, amen? I want to tell you, life begins on the other side of the cross. So those who resist the Holy Spirit over and over again, like Pharaoh, are putting themselves in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. How many have heard of that term, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? All right, okay, so most of us have. Uh, The scripture talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and it calls it the unpardonable sin. Man, if there's a sin that is not forgivable, I want to know what it is so I don't do it, amen? Amen. You know, like if eating junk food after six is the, then I want to know. It's too late. So anyways, Matthew 12, 31 through 32, it says this, wherefore I say unto you, Jesus speaking, all manner, say all. All. Come on, say it like you mean it. Is it too hot in here? You wilting on me? All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven of men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. That sounds deadly serious, doesn't it? An unpardonable and unforgivable sin. Jesus uh, is saying this to a group of people here who had just accused him of something. So let's get the context of where Jesus makes this statement about those who would blaspheme the Holy Spirit, those who would say something about the Holy Spirit that was untrue and they knew it. So what Jesus had just done is he just healed a blind man who was possessed by a devil and he healed him, opened up his eyes and cast the devil out of him. So the Pharisees, you know, of course, the religious crowd is ticked off because Jesus showed them up. This guy lived in their town. They knew he was blind. They knew he had demon problems. But you know what their answer was to it? To put a label on him and not to have the spiritual power to deliver him from his situation. 
Jesus walks in the place, casts the devil out of him, and opens his blind eyes. And so what did the religious crowd say? They say, well, he cast out demons by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. You getting that? They just said Jesus was in cahoots with the devil, casting out devils. He cast out the devil by the prince of devils, by Beelzebub. They knew who he was. They knew he fulfilled all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament they knew so well. They knew everything they should have known to say, this is the power of God in our midst. They should have worshiped him. They should have received him. But instead, they were threatened by him, and they accused him of doing the work of Satan that was actually the work of the Holy Spirit. The first way we blaspheme the Holy Spirit is when we call the working of the Holy Spirit the work of the devil. Now, we have to be very careful about this. The religious crowd still lives in our world. There are those who will say, well, you can't cast out demons. That's of the devil. You can't speak in tongues. That's of the devil. You can't get healed. You can't pray for people. That's of the devil. There are churches with speakers behind pulpits that this day will tell you all that stuff is of the devil. And I want to say, be very, very careful calling the working of the Holy Spirit the work of the devil. You're in a very thin ice. Amen. Why? Because the Bible says these signs shall follow them that believe. They shall speak in other tongues. They shall cast out devils. Amen. That's what it says. Paul says in in, in Corinthians that what we should not forbid the speaking of tongues dedicates a whole chapter of how to use prophecy and speaking of tongues ministry. Look, speaking in tongues don't save you, but don't call the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't call the signs that follow believers the things of the devil. You're on thin ice. I don't argue with people about speaking in tongues or the, you know, healing. Or I don't argue with them. You know why? Because I don't want to provoke them to blaspheme. I pray for their souls. If you don't understand it, shut up about it. Amen? Because it's dangerous. Jesus casts out a devil, and they say, well, he is the devil. And what do you think they would say to us today in retrospect about those words when Jesus said, If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it'll never be forgiven of you. Wow. That's one way the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed, but there's another way, by constantly rejecting the moving and the drawing of the Holy Spirit. We touched on this. What happens when a person is drawn to get saved? Every time they say no, God, every time they say no, Holy Spirit, they harden their hearts. And that's another way that people blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I hear People all the time say, well, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? God doesn't send anyone to hell. We were born in original sin, and from birth, we are on our way to hell. Jesus did everything he possibly could to save us from going to the destination we were born to go. That whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. All we have to do is accept Jesus, and we don't go there. So people who go to hell chose to go to hell. That's why there's weeping and gnashing of teeth there. Why? Because they're in a place for eternity without any hope of getting out, and they chose to be there in spite of the grace of God, in spite of the drawing of the Holy Spirit. They said, no, no, no. I don't need your Jesus. I don't need your forgiveness. I don't need to be born again. No. And they made a choice, and they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you something. 
The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't unforgivable because God's grace has limits. Well, you know, God's grace is, you know, he can only put up with so much. No, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not unforgivable because the blood of Jesus is insufficient. Well, you know, the blood of Jesus is powerful, but it's not that powerful. No, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable is because the person hardens their heart and makes repentance for themselves impossible. So they die in their sin and they pay the penalty of it. Come on, this is good theology this morning. One last point about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and then I'll move on. If you're worried that you've done it, you haven't. I see all kinds of simple saints. That's a nice way of simple saints. Just, oh, pastor, I think I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm lost for eternity. No, listen, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it's a process of hardening your heart. The person who has finally crossed that line, their heart is so hard towards God, they could care less about the Holy Spirit, less about being right with God. Their heart is angry and bitter. And listen, if you're in the place where going, oh, I hope I didn't do it, you didn't do it. Why? Because your heart is still tender enough to care about the possibility of repentance. So wherever God is tugging at you, repent, amen. If God's calling you unto salvation, stop fighting it. Stop resisting it. Bow the knee to Jesus and begin to live, amen. <laughs> Receive the free gift of salvation, but don't resist the Holy Spirit. Now, the text kind of shifts gears a little bit and concludes with an interesting statement, by whom you were sealed, say sealed, sealed. for the day of redemption. Now, this word sealed is an interesting word. We're going to look at the Greek meaning of it in just a second, but there are three New Testament references that talk about New Testament Christians being sealed. 2 Corinthians 1.22 Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and our text, Ephesians 4, 30. Those three texts talk about sealed, being sealed, and use this Greek word that I'm going to show you in just a minute. Also in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, it talks about the sealed servants of God. Who's heard in eschatology about the 144,000? Amen. We got some Bible readers. Okay. Um, so the 144,000 are a group of people in the tribulation period that God seals. And he, he basically puts a, a hedge of protection on them so that the Antichrist can't touch them. The 144,000 are Jewish converts, believers, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of, of Israel, and that equals 144,000. So there again, those people are sealed during the tribulation period, and the Antichrist can't touch them because of the divine protection that's on them. If you read about that and study that, you like eschatology, they're going to be a thorn in the, in the Antichrist side. They're going to testify about Jesus, the Messiah, and they're going to win many to Christ, and they'll be tribulation saints during that period. Amen. Now, the Greek word for the word sealed is phrygizo, phrygizo, and it means to set a seal or a mark upon. And I want you to understand where this idea comes from. In times past, maybe you've seen this before, but royalty or those in high office would put a mark on documents or orders or messages to 
authenticate them. And what they would do is they would take a letter or a scroll or, or some kind of document and they would pour wax on it. And then the king or the official or whoever was in charge would take what was called a signet ring that had their mark on it. And they would push it into that hot wax so that their seal was on the wax and it closed the document. So that anyone getting a document or a letter or whatever from the king would recognize his seal upon it and it was closed. So when they opened it, they knew this was authentically from the king. It was from the mouth of the king. God is basically saying, because you're mine and you've been born again and you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, I'm going to pour my anointing over you and I'm going to mark you as my own and I'm going to seal you so that everybody knows you belong to me. Come on, put your hands together. That's a good thing. You, if you belong to Jesus, you're marked and set apart from God. Every devil in hell knows it. They know who you are. Oh, can't touch that one. That one belongs to the king. Come on. And so it says here, we're sealed. God put his mark upon us. He authenticated us as his own. He put his claim on us and no man or devil in hell can touch us without going through him first because we belong to him. This mark is a promise. The Holy Spirit in us is a promise. It's a down payment on our salvation for eternity that we are gonna be with him in heaven forever. We have the mark of God on us, the seal of God on us, the Holy Spirit inside of us. Powerful, powerful. God has marked us. God has set us apart. God has put a hedge of protection over us so that no devil can touch us, so that the enemy can't destroy us. Why? Because we belong to him. He protects us and he's with us. He's given us eternal security and an assurance of salvation. You know, we can know that we know that we know that we're saved. We should have an assurance of salvation. Not like some, you know, cultish religious groups that, well, am I saved here? I'm saved. Oh, now I'm unforgiven. Now I committed a sin. Now I'm unforgiven. Oh, the unpardonable sin or now a, a mortal sin or a venal. Listen, it, you're either you're saved or you're not saved. You're either marked or you're not marked. And the difference is having a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's really simple. It's a promise of eternal security and assurance that we belong to God, that we will, oh, God will always be with us. He'll be faithful to us. He hears our cry and he has our back at all times. You know, we need the Holy Spirit so much. When David got in trouble and he sinned and he, he, he got Bathsheba pregnant and then he had Uriah, her husband, killed, when God finally caught up with him and the prophet spoke to him and, and brought the conviction of the Lord upon him, David broke before the Lord and he didn't say, oh, God, don't take my kingdom away. God, don't take my riches away. God, don't take my dignity away. God, don't embarrass me. He said, God, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. This is why a man who's an adulterer and a murderer, God can look at him and say, he's a man after my own heart because he cared more for the things of the spirit than for the treasures of this world. And church, we have to yearn for it that much. We have to need it that much. We have to desire the spirit of God in us that much that we would say, God, take everything from me. Take everything away. I deserve it. I'm wrong. You got me, uncle. But don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That's why David said, that's why God said, this, this David, he's a man after my own heart. 
God's got our back. He's with us. He hears our cry. He hears our prayers. He doesn't always come through instantly. Sometimes he makes us wait. Sometimes it drives us crazy. But he's in us. And he's with us. I want to share a testimony with you as I close down this message today. Last week, you know, preached about, uh, you know, what comes out of our mouths and uh, was on the worship team, preached on the worship team, preached two services, and then we baptized 32 people last week. Amen. So I was here at seven and I didn't leave till two and I was on my feet talking the whole time. And that's a, that's a lot for an old, uh, old pastor. <laughs> Going to be 55 and I'm still alive. But, you know, that was a, that was a big day and I was tired and, and I was leaving. I was kind of like a zombie and I'm kind of walking to my car. And I never do this, but I went and gassed up at the gas station over here, all right, by the church. And uh, while I was there, I was just like going through the motions and, you know, putting the pump in there. And I dropped my wallet. And I never, you know, my wife will say I always lose my wallet, but the truth is not in her. The, <laughs> I might misplace it in the house, but this time I 100% dropped my wallet at the gas station and drove away. And so, I mean, everything's in there, and I can't even think of the aggravation. So here I am, I'm dead exhausted, I get home. And of course, you don't figure out you lost something until you drive all the way home, right, all right? So I get home, and I'm looking through the car, and my wife's out, and we're looking. It's gone. I call, we call the gas station. They go out. They look by the pump. It, they don't find it. My brother's still here. I call him. He drives by. He looks for it. They don't find it. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I got no more energy left. There's nothing I can do. I sit on the couch, Ricky, and I say, Lord, you know where that wallet is. I'm putting it in your hands. You bring it back to me. God is my witness. Within two seconds, I just sat down. I hadn't even put a butt print on the couch yet. <laughs> Someone knocks at the door, I open it, and he hands me my wallet. Look, this guy said, this guy said I was behind you at the Valero, and I saw you and knew, knew that you were, you know, you didn't look too good, but here's your wallet. And he drove it all the way up to my house. Even, I mean, just that he got up my driveway was a miracle. Those of you, if you know, you know. So I took that as, you know... The words had barely left my mouth when God was like, I got you. I'm with you. I hear your cries. I'm for you, and you don't have to sweat it. I'll take care of it. That's God with us. That's the Holy Spirit in us, and that's the God that we serve today. Now, I had just preached a message on criticizing, cursing, and complaining. And let me tell you, let me just full disclosure, I was tempted to do all three of those things. <laughs> but I didn't, and, and God came through. And so, uh, you, you know, trust him. He's not just with you, he's in you, and he's for you, and he's got you. Let's bow our heads today. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for Ephesians 4. We thank you for the examples in Scripture like David that show the importance of the Holy Spirit, and even so much more as New Testament believers 
David just didn't want to not feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're full of the Holy Spirit. And let us prioritize the things of the Spirit in our life to put off all filthiness of the flesh and to not give ourselves over to immorality and habitual sin and drunkenness and all these things that defile us and grieve the Spirit in us. Father, help us to just want to live holy to the point where you can empower us to live a life that's pleasing to you so that it won't cost us our peace. When we lay our head on our pillow at night, we can sleep like babies, Lord, because we know you're with us and for us and you've got us and we're right with you. If you're here today and you've never gotten an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ, to make him the Lord of your life, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you would be saved. God made it so simple. Just come to me, admit you're a sinner, receive the Savior. I sent for you Jesus, believe in the resurrection, and I will save you. I will fill you with the Holy Spirit. I'll change your eternal destiny. I'll mark you as my own and I'll keep you unto the day of salvation when you enter heaven for eternity. You see, that sounds great. What does it cost? It doesn't cost us anything. It costs Jesus every drop of his blood, and he willingly shed it because he loves us so much. If you're here today and you say, I want to confess Jesus, and I want to receive him as my Savior, just simply slip up your hand. How many people here today would want to just say, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I want my eternity settled this morning. Hands going up. God bless you. God bless you. Go ahead, ushers. Just give them. Ushers are going to put something in your hand. We're going to pray a prayer together. Anyone else? This is the most important part of our service. I prayed a prayer like this many years ago when I was 14. It changed my life forever. It'll change your life. God bless you today. Let's pray a prayer together. Say, Lord Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner, and I know you're the Savior. I receive you as my Savior. I accept you as Lord. I ask you to forgive my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe you rose from the dead on the third day. So give me that resurrection power so I can live a different life, one that pleases you. From this moment forward, I belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, Welcome to the family of God. The prayer like that will definitely, sincere prayer like that,